Well, I'd invite you to open your Bibles now to Ephesians chapter 1. And I'm going to read verses 13 and 14. And we'll pray and go into it for this morning. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Let's pray as we begin. Father, without the work of your Holy Spirit in us, we have no hope of making any headway in our life, whether in holiness, whether in our knowledge of you or our love for one another. It is such a demonstration of your wisdom that you sent your Spirit to dwell in those who are believers. So God, this morning as we look together at your word, I pray that you would be our teacher. That by your spirit, we would be bound to your word as truth. We would come under your word as our authority and stand on your word as our foundation. We really have no hope other than you do something this morning. So be with me in the preaching. Be with these brothers and sisters in the hearing, Lord. And above all, would you be glorified in our time. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've talked a lot in the last weeks about salvation and the way that that happens. And most often in Ephesians 1, we've seen it kind of from God's perspective. What God has done in saving us through choosing, through adopting us, and all those things. It's kind of been from God's side and God's point of view. This morning, we're going to see in verse 13 especially what salvation looks like from our perspective. What happens when we get saved? Or I would ask this question, what must I do to be saved? What's involved in that process from our perspective? We, we know what happens from God's side. We've seen that over the last weeks. So I want to answer the question, how do I get saved? which is a question we all need to know so that as we interact with people, we can have that answer and that response. My first point this morning, if you're a note taker, it's going to be number one, the gospel of truth. Paul says here in verse 13, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit. The most important thing that you and I need to know, the most pressing issue on us today and people of all time is addressed in this verse. Like I said, if I were to come up to you, just like the Philippian jailer did with Paul and Silas and say, what must I do to be saved? What do you say? Or in Jesus' ministry, the rich young ruler comes up and says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Same question. How do we answer that question? Well, I think this verse, verse 13 of chapter 1, in harmony with the rest of the Bible, answers this and tells us that in order for someone to be saved, two things need to happen. Again, this is from our perspective. You look at the verse, we need to hear the true gospel and believe that it's true. Hearing and believing. Right? Verse 13, you heard the word of truth and believed in him. Hearing, believing. 
Paul said it this way in Galatians 3, verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Hearing and believing. Now, this is a rhetorical question. You guys know what a rhetorical question is? It's a question where the answer is so obvious it doesn't even need an answer. Okay? So when Paul says, how did you come to be this way? How did you get saved? Was it by doing something? Or was it by hearing and believing? Obvious answer, hearing and believing. We see this chain of events in Romans chapter 10. Paul says in verse 13, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Okay, how does that happen? He continues by asking questions. How then will they call upon them in whom they have not believed? Okay, well, okay, so we have the belief piece. Well, what happens? How are they to believe in him of whom they have never, what? Heard. Hearing and believing is the theme of the Bible when it comes to how do we get saved. This is why the gospel must be preached and spoken and taught because without the knowledge of God and his holiness, without hearing that we're sinners in need of rescue, the good news of salvation through Jesus will not fall upon us with the appropriate weight. Last week I said we can't worship a God that we know nothing of. And similarly, how are we to call upon a God whom we've never heard of or not believed in or know nothing about? It's the same kind of argument. Getting people to understand their lostness can be a real challenge. Especially when we live in a world where there's so much, at least in our area, affluence. People are comfortable. Got a good job, or a job anyways. You have a home to live in. You have these, you're comfortable in your existence. Why would I need Jesus? Why would I add something to that? John Piper recounts a time where his father had come home. He was a, his dad was a traveling evangelist, and he would go have these meetings. And he came home one time on the, uh, after a meeting, and he said, You know what, John? The hard part is not getting people saved. It's getting them to realize they're lost and in need of a Savior. And if that was true in the 60s and 70s, how much more true now? Where people are so comfortable and so set, why would they need God? So when I talk about an articulation of the gospel, I'm talking about the whole gospel that includes the fact that we are sinful and in need of a Savior. The good news will not be sweet until we understand the bitterness of our sin and the condition we are in there. Notice I said that the true gospel should be preached. What do I mean true gospel? In verse 13, Paul says that it's in hearing and believing the word of truth that we come to be saved. Truth is a crucial element in the gospel. Think about the world we live in right now, right in this moment this morning. What we consider to be biblical truth, is that commonly accepted in the world as true? No. Take a stand for biblical truth and see what happens. You'll get ridiculed. Which is why it is so important that we use the Bible as the standard for what we consider to be true. Don't buy the lie that you can make up whatever truth you want to make up. You can't. Not and be a Christian. 
Our standard of truth is God's word revealed through his Holy Spirit to us. Anything outside of that is dangerous. God's word is true, and God's word is truth. Both. John 17, Jesus is praying for his disciples, and for us by extension, he says this, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Or Psalm 119, the longest description of God's word in all of the Bible. In verse 160, it says this, the entirety of your word is true. The Bible is true, and it is truth. For the Christian, God's word is the standard. Do not accept what the world tells you if it contradicts God's word. Obvious application. How do you know if it contradicts God's word if you don't know God's word? (laughs) Be in the Bible. Live there. And occasionally step out to read something good like Lewis or someone else. What does it mean then, if we're talking about truth and the Bible is the standard of truth, what does it mean for our proclamation, our, the way we articulate the gospel message? What does this have to do with then? How should it affect our gospel presentation? Well, we must make sure that we include all of the elements of the gospel. And over the years, there have been many good articulations of the gospel. When I think about what should be included... When the gospel is shared, I think about four different things. You can do it differently. This is just the way that I think about it. I think we need to know God, man, Christ, and the response to those three things. God, man, Christ, response. God is a holy God. He is the creator of everything. And he has a standard or a requirement for righteousness that we must have in order to have a relationship with him. Man was created in God's image, but fell into sin. And because of that sin, because of our sin nature and the sin that we do, we've been separated from God. Unable to do anything to climb back to him or work our way back to him. And Jesus... Jesus comes to earth and lives the life that we could never live in perfect obedience to God. He dies the death that you and I deserved so that because of not only having our sin removed in the act of sacrifice, we now have the righteousness of Jesus freely given to us so that when God looks at someone that is a Christian, he does not see the rotten, filthy sinner that we were. He sees Christ's righteousness and Christ's righteousness alone. So what's the response to that? You heard the gospel, and Paul would say, believe. Jesus would say, believe. Peter would say, believe. John would say, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. Four elements that I think should be included. Now, you don't have to have this outline. You don't have to say, okay, you want to know the gospel? Sit down. I've got four main points, three sub points under every point, and we're going to take about an hour to go through this. You need to know this in principle so that no matter how it comes out, you include those things. It's as easy as saying, look, God has a requirement for how we live 
And we've broken it because of sin, but Jesus made a way for that. And would you like to know more about Jesus? Boom, 20 seconds, gospel. Don't be intimidated by having this full explanation. Just make sure that it includes those elements. So now let's answer the question that we asked earlier. The question was, how do I get saved? Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? I think we should say after hearing this, by hearing and believing the gospel of truth. Hearing and believing. Kids, this is why your parents bring you to church. Because as we pray for God to save you, as we pray for the Holy Spirit to work in you, you need to hear and believe the gospel message. This is why we preach the gospel and teach the gospel and say the gospel. Because there's no hope for salvation apart from that. How will they be saved? How will I call upon the name of the Lord? How do we expect our kids to do that if they've never heard? And how will they hear if they're not exposed to that kind of teaching from you as parents and from those that you trust around them? Number one, the gospel of truth. Now what happens when we hear and believe the gospel? What is it, according to this text, that happens next? It tells us that we are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. This brings us to our next point. Number two, a certain inheritance. A certain inheritance. Or you could say a sure inheritance. It's solid. Look at these verses again. Verses 13 and 14. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of of his glory. We know from other places in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is involved in our salvation by awakening your heart and making you receptive so that when you hear the gospel, you don't think of it as foolishness, but you think of it as the power of God unto salvation. Well, here in Ephesians 1, we see that he also performs another very important function in the salvation of the believer. Namely, he seals and guarantees for our inheritance. Now when we read verses 13 and 14, we shouldn't think of the sealing of the Holy Spirit as something that comes later, right? Like you, you be a Christian for a couple months and then when God finally decides that you're good enough, he'll stamp that seal on you and you're good to go. At the moment we are saved, you have the guarantee of eternal security and salvation. How do you know? Because God gave his spirit to you and that is the seal. You do not need to be a Christian for a few weeks or a few months or a few years before you come into this. The Holy Spirit is given at conversion. This is one way Paul says it in Romans 8. Verse 9, you, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Speaking to Christians, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him, meaning that if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit. No exceptions. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Coming back to Ephesians 1, what exactly does it mean then that the Holy Spirit is the seal and guarantee? Let's look at both of those words, seal and guarantee. First, seal. Maybe sometimes when we think about the word seal, we think about something that preserves or keeps fresh. A lot of times on packaging for stuff we eat or drink, it says if the seal's broken... 
don't go in here. Don't eat this. If your Oreos are ripped open, don't eat those Oreos. Right? That's a bad decision because the seal has been broken. Or maybe we think of seal as the, I think of the Secretary of State has a seal. It's an emblem, something that says, we're going to put this on our letterhead to let everybody know we approve of this. This is coming directly from this office. In Bible times, a king or a monarch would wear what was called a signet ring. Think of it like a Super Bowl ring. It's huge, had a design on it. And when a decree or an order went out to the land, they would write it, roll it up, put a big blob of hot wax on it, and the king would put his ring in there. And the emblem or the symbol would go on that wax, letting everybody know the king gives approval to this message. So all of these things are good examples of seals, but they're all external, right? They're all things that happen outside. And I think when we come to Ephesians 1 here, we should think about this sealing of the Holy Spirit as something that happens inside of us. Remember that in the Old Testament, God had promised that he would send the Holy Spirit to be inside of us. I think the most clear text is probably Ezekiel 36. You can follow along, or you can just listen. I'll just read a couple verses. Ezekiel 36, verse 26. God says, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my ways. In the same way that a king's seal means I give approval to this, When God gives his Holy Spirit to us to indwell us, it's a sign that he approves. Like I said before, he doesn't see you the same way. He sees through the righteousness of Jesus. And this is a measure of the grace that we receive through Christ. There's another place in Paul's writings where he uses seal and guarantee language in reference to the Holy Spirit. Turn to 2 Corinthians, just a couple books to the left in your Bible. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, or you can follow along too. I'm going to read verses 21 and 22. 2 Corinthians 1, 21, 22. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. Seal and guarantee. Here, God puts his seal on us, which you can argue if whether or not that's referring to the Holy Spirit, but I think it is talking about that because of what Paul says here in Ephesians 1 and also in Ephesians 4, which we'll get to in a while. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Several places in scripture, it talks about the Holy Spirit being the one who does this sealing keeping. When Paul says that the Spirit who sealed us was the promised Holy Spirit, this can mean a couple of different things. Saying that he was the promised Holy Spirit is an interpretive decision. So the text would read literally, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise. Okay, if we read it that way, it would allow us to see that the promises that God has made, all of the things kept for us, the good things to come are mediated, they are given to us through the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, both of these interpretations are right, good, right? It's just a kind of a word order thing, and I don't think it affects 
the text either way because moving on in verse 14, we can see that the benefits that are coming include this guarantee. So moving on in the verse, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit is also the guarantee? So he seals, it's God's approval on our life. What does it mean that he's the guarantee? At a glance, you might think that seal and guarantee are kind of the same. But Paul uses them distinctly, and I think we should view them as different as well. When we see the word guarantee, we should think, like I said at the beginning, a down payment. Different versions have good translations of this word. Uh, The CSB, for instance, calls it, the Holy Spirit is a down payment. The NASB says first installment. Or here in the ESV, it says guarantee. All of these carry a similar meaning. That the Spirit is given at conversion, and in addition to sealing, in addition to marking us with the Spirit, he's also the guarantee or the certainty that we will indeed obtain the inheritance that God has promised for us. This is one of those realities that we see over and over again in Scripture, and it's called, at least Bible scholars have called it, the already and the not yet, meaning that we now presently have benefits from our salvation, yet there are parts of our salvation that we're not going to get until we come into glory with Jesus. We've already received salvation, yet there's going to be more to experience at glory. This is not at all to say that we're not secure right now, like we have this partial salvation. Because as we saw, the Holy Spirit is meant to be a guarantee, a first installment for our hope. Paul said it this way in Romans 8, Verse 24, I think this is a good way to illustrate both the thing we're talking about and the idea of this. Romans 8, 24, for in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Verse 24, he says, in this hope we were saved. That's the already. That's the present reality. And yet he also says that we hope for what we do not see and we wait for that with patience. That's the yet to come. Okay, so we have this already reality. We have a not yet. Something that we're waiting for, looking for. And I think this is what Paul is communicating in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. We have been saved, right? He made that really clear in the first 12 verses and we saw from God's perspective how that works. And now he is looking and showing us that the grace of God that saved us is not only for right now, but there is something glorious that everybody in Christ has to look forward to. You get dragged down about your life, you get dragged down about the world and the situations we're in, remember, Christian, there is something coming that is so much better. How do you know you're going to get it? Because God is the one who keeps it for us and gives his own spirit, his own spirit. It's a part of him that he gives to us to guarantee that we're going to get it. I knew a young girl, 10 or 12 years old, her uncle passed away and left her a pretty good-sized chunk of money. And because she was young, she couldn't get the whole thing until she was an adult. So her parents were the kind of guardians of the account or custodians or whatever the financial term is for people who watch that kind of stuff. And when they went to court and kind of settled everything, the court gave the girl 
I think it was twelve or fifteen hundred dollars of the money that she could kind of put in an account or do whatever right now, but she couldn't get the whole amount until she was an adult. So her parents tell her, Honey, when you grow up, this will be here for you, and we're gonna make sure that it's here. Now, why should the girl believe that the money's gonna be there? Well, she knows her parents. She loves them and she trusts them. So if they tell her it's going to be there, she believes them. Now apply that to what we just read here. You and I have received the down payment, the first installment, the guarantee of our inheritance. God has sealed us with his spirit and told us, when you get to glory, this is going to be there. Why should we believe that's true? If a young girl can trust her parents... How much more should you and I trust our Heavenly Father who has never lied, who has never gone back on his word, who has done nothing but good for us? How much more should we trust him that because he gives us his spirit, this will be there for us at the end? When God says that he has sent his spirit to seal and to guarantee that we will come into possession of the inheritance, we can trust that he will do it. Finally, the end of verse 14, for the third time in this section, Paul uses this refrain, to the praise of his glory. Think about all the different things we've seen over the last seven weeks. We've seen God choose us in Christ. We've seen him adopt us, bring us into his family in a relationship. We've seen our sins that are forgiven and redemption that we receive through Christ. We looked at the will of God and that grace was lavishly given to us. Now when we read those things, what should we do? Remember last week I said about revelation and response. When we see something of God, we should respond in appropriate ways and that's what Paul is calling us to right here. When we see the grand design of God in setting everything up this way, I mean no No human could do this. No limited, finite mind could dream up this plan of God's for salvation. And not only plan it, but then put it into play in such a way that it absolutely works. Only God can do that. And you and I have the chance now to glorify him for that as recipients of his grace. When we consider what God has done We see the revelation of his plan. What else could you say but praise the glory of God? Let's pray together as we come to the table. Father, I ask on behalf of my own soul and on behalf of these brothers and sisters that this morning, maybe for the first time, we would have confidence that you who sent your spirit to us will make sure that we come into our inheritance in Christ. Oh God, build that confidence into us as believers. Don't let us go through our lives in shaky and unstable, always doubting your goodness to us, God. You have done everything for us. And all we have to do is believe. 
So God, give us the faith to trust that what you say is true. Give us opportunities in our lives, God, to share this good news with those around us and build into us the confidence that we need to know with certainty you will keep us until the end. Work that into us now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.